Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. I was talking to my friend uh, in, uh, in back in Alabama about this, and he said, it must be hard to raise kids in the North. And I said, well, no, it's not. It's not that there's any culture that has ever just been a perfect fit for the, for the Bible or for the church. There's never been a culture in human history that is so perfectly lined up with the ethics of the Bible that we could just take it for granted. So the South, even though it may have some trappings of Christianity, though maybe the Bible Belt isn't a perfect setup for that. Uh, every culture has idols. In the North, our idols are staring us in the face. What seems to be an enemy to the faith is staring right at us. It feels antagonistic and it can feel threatening. But in the South, I said, our idols snuggle right up next to us. In fact, idols like comfort and safety and politics go right up next to you and they lull you into thinking that they line up with Scripture. But First Peter, I do think, describes best how we are to live as the church in the city of Boston. This is a group of people who've been dispersed throughout Asia Minor, and I love the way that Peter describes this, and he echoes the same word in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, to those who are, this is chapter 1, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. They have been dispersed through persecution all across Asia Minor, and he calls them elect exiles. In other words, this is not your home. The city you're living in, whether it is Galatia or Pontus or Cappadocia or Bithynia, is not your home. The city of Boston is not ultimately your home. The city of Nashville or Charlotte or Seattle or Chicago or wherever you may be from is not ultimately your home. Our home lies elsewhere, and as people who are living as exiles in a place that is not our home, we have to learn to live differently, and we're going to look differently. Mary Wilson once said that we are, we are just traveling through. The world is not our home. In fact, we are far from home. We live here in tents, not castles. In order to live the Christian life, we must set our hearts on our true home, not on the things of the world. And the way we're living as exiles in a city like Boston or wherever we may live is not just simply so that we can get by. It's not just so simply that we can get from Monday to Friday unscathed. But actually, as exiles living in the city, it is actually God's plan to use people like us living as exiles for the good of our neighbors. And this is why verse 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That word honorable can also be translated as beautiful. What does it look like for you and I to live beautiful honorable, distinct lives to the glory of God in such a way that our neighbors see Jesus and glorify him? That's the question. It means we have to learn how not to just live in the city of Boston, we have to learn to live for the city of Boston. So how do we do that? In 1 Peter, we see God creating a new type of humanity out of the old in order to bless the world. And it says at the beginning of 1 Peter 2 that we're living stones, we're living testimonies to God's grace and that God is building up the church into something special using ordinary people like you and I empowered by the Spirit with Jesus as the cornerstone of His church. 
And so this new humanity God promises is built on Jesus and will be an invitation to our onlooking neighbors to where life can be found. And so to live as exiles for the good of Boston requires us to remember three ideas. Number one, who you are. Number two, whose you are. And then thirdly, why that matters. So let's look at who you are. I believe most of life is us trying to figure out who we are. I remember high school many, many years ago. And high school is just a four-year experiment of haircuts and styles and all sorts of ways to figure out what, what you're like. I went through a lot of bad haircuts in high school. I went through a lot of bad styles in hair school. I had this, this one Tommy Hilfiger polo that I think I wore from eighth grade through my freshman year in college. So I was, it was really oversized, and it kind of fit at the end. Uh, and it was like half green and blue and half white and red, and the collar was all weird. I had a bowl cut at one point. Uh, it, it's an experiment to figure out who you are. And all of us are still often trying to figure out who we are. And it might not be haircuts, and it might not be styles, and it might, might not be music, but it might be education and career. It might be relationship status. And all of this, we're trying to figure out who am I? And if you can't figure this out on your own, there's multiple podcasts and self-help books and even just the cultural narrative, which is trying to tell you who you are. And if you listen to the cultural narrative long enough, what it says is that, is that you're autonomous. You get to decide who you are. Be whoever you want to be. Be like Mike, as Nike said. Be, be, be whatever you want to be. And the key to discovering who you are is found through sex and power and achievement. But the problem with all of those things is, as a means to figure out who you are is it's like shifting sand. And if you don't find your identity in something transcendent, you're always going to be searching for meaning or purpose. And this is why I believe the Bible tells us that we find our identity in who God declares us to be. And this is why Augustine famously said that our hearts are restless until they find their homes in God. Who we are is defined by who God declares us to be. And this means that we can find a fixed and true meaning for our identity. And this is what Jesus promises us through the new identity given to us in the gospel. And verse 9 wraps this up where it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There are three aspects of this identity in Christ. The first is that you are a chosen race. We need to understand the magnitude of this because the word race can also be translated as family. The word in Greek is genos, like genealogy. So God brings you, chooses you into his family, not because of anything you've done, but by his grace. So God chose all who will trust Jesus Christ as Lord and brings them into his family saying that God wants you. Now remember, who is this being written to? This isn't being written to the culturally elite. It's being written to exiles. It's being written to the lowest. And the good news of being chosen into God's family is that there's nothing you can do to keep you out. But there's also nothing you can do to get yourself in on your own efforts. It means that your ethnicity can't keep you out or get you in. It means your gender or your past or your background or your achievements, none of those things are enough to keep you out and none of those things are enough to get you in. It is solely by God's grace through the finished work of Christ. It's God who gets you in and it's God who promises to complete his work in you, bringing you into his family. And so every other means by which we can define who we are says that you become this thing by earning it. You become a doctor by finishing medical school. 
You, you become this by striving. You become an Olympic champion, which I have, you know, no, there's no chance of that happening for me, but you become an Olympic champion by striving for it, by working for it. You, you become this by arriving at it. But Jesus says, you become this through what I've done for you. And as the church, we're called into this weird little family full of crazy aunts and uncles, people from every walk of life and background, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, called together as this beautiful tapestry called the church. And the church is unique because it's the only institution where it doesn't really matter whether you're single or you're married. You have equal footing in Jesus' family. Your race, it, does, it, does, it doesn't matter about getting in, but it, it's magnified and it's, it's seen as truest beauty. It doesn't matter if you know everything about the Bible or nothing, but Jesus saves. You get to be a part of the family. And the reason is, is we look to Jesus together who makes us family. So we are a chosen race, but the other part of this is we are called a royal priesthood. Now, this is a major shift in the way that the Bible talks about priests. So if you know anything about the Old Testament, the way that the Old Testament described a priest was a guy who wore like a kind of a bedazzled robe. It, does, it almost looks bedazzled when you read it. Um, and he mediates the presence of God to the people of God. He, he would make sacrifices for God's people so that they could have relationship with God. And then we see that Jesus comes in the New Testament as the very presence of God, as God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us to be a better priest. And then 1 Corinthians describes us now as the temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning that you and I are now a priesthood set aside so that others may meet God. The way that other people meet Jesus is not through just coming to a church service. It's through God's people sent into our city as the very presence of God. We do so through the empowering of the Spirit. The third aspect of this is that we're called to be a holy nation, a people set apart. Now, this sounds familiar if you look at the book of Exodus because this is the exact same way that God describes the people of Israel. He, told, he said he wanted them to be a holy nation, a royal nation priesthood, a people set apart for God. And so when you see this, when you see who you are in Christ as part of a, a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, you begin to realize that you can't just wander your way through life. That there's more to life than just going to work tomorrow morning. That you're set aside for a purpose. That you don't just get to live however you want to live, but you're actually called to live in a unique and holy way, a distinct way that's going to look different than our neighbors. But if you don't see yourself as set apart, you're going to begin to be shaped by the city that you live in. Again, whether that's Boston or Charlotte. It's like being a, a river rock. If you put a rock, a large rock in a river long enough, the river is going to shape that rock according to its will. In the same way, if we just are a rock here in the city and we're being shaped by our city, we're going to look more and more like our city unless it's Jesus who's the one to shape us. And as we do so, we begin to look distinct and set apart for his glory. Remembering who you are is going to help you when you go to work tomorrow. It's going to help you when you're trying to figure out where to live. It's not just about getting the best apartment, but how do I glorify God best through his church? So we have to remember who we are. But secondly, we have to remember whose you are. God created a new humanity with a new identity for a purpose. 
And we saw this throughout Genesis, all this stuff is tied together, that there's a creation mandate given that we're to be fruitful and multiply, meaning that more people would glorify God through us. And we see this through the Bible as God set aside Abraham and said, I want you to be a people who blesses all people, that from that very moment, the locus of that was to get to Habakkuk 2, where it says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Our purpose as a new, new humanity with a new identity is to make Christ known. A people for God's own possession. The end of verse 9 says, A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Possession means that your life doesn't belong to you, but it belongs to God. And, and so our identity of who we are is tied inexplicably to whose we are. We are a possession of God, which means if you are a possession, you have a new purpose to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that excellency means good. It means something is excellent. It means something is the best. It's like when you're in school and the teacher's going around handing out papers or handing out tests. You know, if, you're, if your teacher had the, the test facing down, you knew it was bad news, right? You didn't want your neighbor to see what was on that, that test score. But if your teacher proudly had it facing upwards and placed it on your desk and you see an A plus and the word excellent written, written next to it, you knew it was the best. In the same way, we proclaim Jesus who is the best. We declare the beauty and the grandeur of God for what he is and what he has done. Gary Sandham says, those who believe in the Lord Jesus are a treasure possession called to proclaim God's glory to the world. We proclaim the good news of Jesus through the hope of the gospel to other people. And this is the great commission that the church has been sent with. We've been sent to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have the best news ever to tell. We have the absolute best news in the world to proclaim the excellent goodness of Jesus. And we do so given the great commandment, or commission, but also the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's interesting about that is that he says that there's another one like it, this, this, it flows out of this that to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to say this. You cannot love your neighbor if you're not sharing the gospel with them. As a follower of Jesus, if we are not sharing the gospel, the good news, the only way to life, we're not truly loving our neighbors. And the excuses we often give for not sharing the gospel show that we do not love our neighbors, but we actually love ourselves. I, I'm, I'm scared to share the gospel with my neighbor, which often means... I'm afraid of what this might do to my reputation. Like, we're doing good right now. They haven't gotten mad about not taking the trash out. Like, we're doing okay. Everything's comfortable. But to truly love our neighbors is to put our, our desires and our things on the back burner for the sake of others. Our reputation, our comfort, for the sake of others knowing Christ. It means our greatest purpose is, is not to come to Boston to get an education. It's not to find a spouse. It's not to, to find a career, but it's to make Jesus known. But what if all of those blessings that God brings into our life, whether it's getting to go through a, a program or it's, it's finding a significant other or the career that you have, what if those were means by which you could show that Jesus is excellent? What if you could show Jesus is excellent by being the best 
doctor or school teacher or engineer or, or service worker possible? What, what would it look like if you were to love your spouse like Christ loved the church, showing Jesus is excellent? So being a, a possession of God means you have a new purpose. It also means you have a new hope. We often recite the New City Catechism, and the first question is, is just a straight ripoff of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's like on that episode of The Office where it said, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, Wayne Gretzky and then Michael Scott. It's a little bit like that. But the first question says this, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's like what Jesus says, that we find our lives by losing them. That we find that our hope actually comes not from being the one who's in control of our life, not, being, not from being autonomous, not being the one who calls all the shots, but our hope actually comes from knowing that we belong, body and soul, everything to Jesus. That is our hope. And, and knowing this, knowing you belong to God, helps you and gives you hope when life falls apart. It means that your world's not going to crumble when you lose your job. It means that you have an anchor to hang on to when you lose that family member to cancer. It means that Jesus is enough for you. So as we wrap up, I want to look at the idea of why these ideas matter. Why does it matter that we know who we are and whose we are? They matter because they help us live as exiles for the good of the city. And this matters because this is all grace. Who you are and whose you are is all grace. How did you come into God's family? God chose you into it. Not by your merits, not by your goodness, not by your potential. Because if you're honest and, and if, you're, if you're like me, you look at the descriptors you see in verse 9 and you're like, man, I don't think I live up to that. I, I certainly don't live like I'm God's child all the time. I certainly don't live like I believe I have a good father who loves me and that I don't run elsewhere. I'm not living like a priest looking to help other people know God. I, I certainly don't feel holy if you knew the things I thought and did this week. How can we possibly be made these things? Peter drives us home. Peter is almost saying in verse 10, you know what? You know you're right. Because he, he kind of he kind of senses the doubt that's coming that I, I don't feel like I am these things. I don't feel like I'm a beloved child of God. He says in verse 10, once you were not a people. He goes on to say, once you had not received mercy. One time, you weren't these things. The backstory of this comes from the book of Hosea. Hosea was an Old Testament prophet who married a woman named Gomer, which should have been the first clue that something was going to go wrong uh, with a name like Gomer. And the story there is God had him marry her as a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God because Gomer sells herself into prostitution. And, and they have two children whose names translate, not my people and no mercy. You thought you had a bad name, blaming your parents, not a people and no mercy. Saying that they had forfeited God, a relationship with God. You once were not. You once were not part of God's people. You once were sitting under the judgment of God. But he's saying, through Christ, now you are. Through Jesus, you now are a part of the people. Through Jesus, you now have received mercy by his grace. It's all about grace. 
God made you family by grace. He calls you as a priest to help others see him by grace. He declares you holy by his grace. And this matters because what would motivate God to show you this grace? It's simply his love. What greater love than this than a man who laid down his life for his friends? Or as it says in 1 John 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And if you have any doubt that you are loved by God, the very first word of verse 11 is beloved. We could do an entire sermon on that one word, beloved. You're the object of God's affection. God placed his love on you, and that means he knows you intimately and wants what is best for you. I was listening to an old uh, Sandra McCracken podcast this week as I was driving called Slow Work, and uh, she was talking with Kevin Finch, who is Eugene Peterson's uh, uh, nephew, and Eugene Peterson was a very influential pastor. Um, And Kevin Finch actually left pastoral ministry uh, to start a nonprofit to care for those in the service industry. And he mentioned how in the service industry, you never know your waiter or your waitress's name until something goes wrong. You know, they they burn your fish or or whatever, which straight to jail. You know, they burn your fish or whatever that is. Like, you you don't know them until something goes wrong. He talked about the power of knowing their names before that because it actually makes someone feel like they're human. It, It means you care about them. And he actually extends this metaphor into bird watching. He says, if, if you're walking through the woods and you know the names of the birds you're looking for, you begin to notice them. God knows you by name and he notices you. He knows you as a part of his beloved family and he knows you way more than he knows a bird, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, that if he knows where the bird of the falls in the field and he knows every hair on your head. And with that same love and that same grace that we've received, we can point our neighbors towards that good news that there is a place that you can be truly known and a place that you can be truly loved, and it is in Jesus. So I want to give us, as we close, three practical steps to be an exile people for the good of Boston. Just three practical steps. Number one is you have to surrender. This is vital. If you don't get past this part, none of the rest of it matters. You have to surrender. Have you surrendered to Jesus? And this happens in sort of two different ways. There's the initial surrender. That's when you surrender your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You say, Lord, I I can't bear my sins. Lord, I I don't want to be an orphan anymore. I don't want to be the Lord of my own life. I need you to forgive me and apply the work of the cross to me. But in order to do that, you have to lay everything down. Because again, St. Augustine said, God is always trying to give good things to us but our hands are too full to receive them. If your hands are full of your own good works and your own good efforts, you're never going to surrender your life to Jesus. You have to surrender those things and trust Jesus as Lord. But if you've done that, there's an ongoing surrender. C.S. Lewis says that when we surrender to God, it's actually a commitment to surrender every time he calls us to obedience and faith. In the same way, are you surrendering to Jesus as Lord each day? You're saying, Lord, whatever it means, I trust you with my body, with my soul, with my desires, with my sin, with my bitterness. I'm willing to deny myself for the joy set ahead of me. So we have to surrender. Secondly is we have to be set apart. There's this Old Testament refrain that's said in in chapter 1, verse 16, that you shall be holy for I am holy. God's desire for us is to be a holy people set apart for himself. 
that we must fully enjoy him in the world we've been created for by being set apart. And that's actually the best way we can represent God in the world. And it goes on in verse 11. He urges us as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We're urged as sojourners and exiles to abstain. And what this means is you might look a little weird. You may not be at home in the laboratory or the class or the boardroom or the job site or in your neighborhood. You're far from home, but as a sojourner in exile, you're not far from God. We're set apart to Him. We're called to live differently and be different, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. The passions are the desires and the longings that cause you to stop marveling at Christ. They're the things that you look to to satisfy your soul outside of God's design, and they actually wage war against your soul. It's a fight. You were created to glorify God, but these passions try to make our desires and longings into some other excellency that pales in comparison to the brightness of Jesus. This is a fight for the soul. We pursue holiness. We fight for holiness. And so there are two sort of complementary ways that we do this to fight sin and pursue holiness. Number one, we cut it off. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. I mean, don't be on the internet by yourself. Stay out of that situation. Stay away from that person. It also means you may have to replace it. Thomas Chalmers once said, there's an expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, a greater love will push out lesser loves. We have to replace that desire for sin with a desire for the Lord. It's okay to fight. How are we fighting sin? And the last way we do this as exiles is we seek Jesus and his heart for our neighbor. When you understand what Jesus has done for you, when you see your call to, to do this, you make sure that your neighbors hear about it. And so we demonstrate the love that we've been shown. And this is what Jeff Vanderstelt calls gospel metaphors. What has Jesus done for you that you can then turn around and do for another? We end up becoming a mirror of God's love to people in our cities. So I just want to give you some practical ways we do this. Jesus was our advocate, which means that as God's people, we can speak up for the voiceless. Jesus sacrificed himself for us, which means that we could live on less in order to give more. We could do less in order to serve more. Jesus was your healer, which means he stepped into broken places and we can step into the broken spaces in our neighborhood with hope. Jesus is your forgiver, which means our debts were paid. What if we look to pay the debts of others? Jesus is called the wonderful counselor. There may be times as a, a follower of Jesus, you're sitting up late over a meal or a cup of coffee with someone as they're pouring their heart out to you. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, meaning that we can be a calm and non-anxious presence in our neighborhoods and our workplaces because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is the Restorer, and we can seek to make all things new in our neighborhood. Jesus is the Redeemer, which means we could do something like turn an empty lot, which is used for sinfulness and drugs and sex trafficking, and transform that into a community garden. We, we, Jesus was hospitable, invited us into his family. We could be a church that's so hospitable that strangers feel like they're a part of our family. Jesus is your provider, which means that you and I can meet the tangible needs of others. God is the father to the fatherless. And maybe just as a challenge to our men, there are plenty of young boys in our neighborhood who are looking for a dad figure. What would it look like for us to be mentors? 
Ladies, there are plenty of young women looking for an influence. What would it look like for us to be a mentor? Let us consider how we can live as an exile people for the good of our city because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray.